This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 338. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel Glass welcoming you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show here on the Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. I, as always, am your host, Daniel Glass, and today uh, we're going to jump into... Um, another of my Tales from the Road series. You may remember uh, several episodes back, several sessions back, uh, I spent some time talking about one week in 1996 when my band Royal Crown Review opened up for Kiss and Neil Diamond in the same week, swear to God. And uh, it's there's much more to that story. Um, but I sort of took that one week in the life of a band, 1996, and uh, made a whole show out of it because I spent a lot of time on the road in the late 90s, certainly throughout the 2000s as well. But in the late 90s, um, I was on the road continuously with my band, Royal Crown Review. For most of 1997 and 98, we were, we were gone. I think we, we did upwards of 300 plus days on the year, on the road those years. So this is uh, another look at that period of my life. And it's a real interesting kind of look because in looking back, I'm reminded of what life on the road is like and how you really, sometimes there's a snapshot where you sort of feel like Forrest Gump. You're around all kinds of things that would turn out to be important, monumental stories that would end up having greater meaning or people that would end up going on to become very famous, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of, this particular episode, we're going to focus on uh, the Warped Tour. And for those of you who do not know, the Warped Tour is quite a phenomenon, but unless you are from a certain demographic or a certain age group, you may have only heard of it in passing, or you may not realize just what it is. Royal Crown Review, 20 years ago, was on Warp Tour 1997, and then we were on it again in 99, and we we also um, were on some of the only Warp Tours that went to Europe, and also to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Hawaii. So it was a very impactful year. This is 1997. It was one of the two probably heaviest years, and and 98 that we were on the road, and a lot of it, our lives were around uh, this thing, the Warp Tour. Now, the Warp Tour, as you as you may or may not know, is um, it's the largest traveling music festival in the United States. It is a traveling roadshow of kooks, crazies, pimps, mad mad people, drug addicts, freaks. Uh, you name it, and they're out there on this tour. Probably not so different than most other music tours, though, I have to say. Life on the Road is a is a crazy, sketchy, fun, wonderful, insane, nightmarish place, all rolled up into one. But the Warp Tour is the largest traveling music festival in the United States. It's also the longest-running touring music festival in North America. So forget your Lollapaloozas and... and uh, Forget your uh, uh, whatever all those cool music festivals are today, the one that happens in Tennessee and the one that happens in outside Vegas and, and the one that happens outside uh, Palm Springs, uh, none of which the names of which I'm remembering at the moment because I'm not really involved with them. Uh, but 
the Warp Tour has been around uh, since 1995, actually. So it's actually been around for 22 years, and it's continued to run every single year. Um, what's what's interesting, the Warp Tour is essentially a, an opportunity for young bands to uh, have an opportunity to, to play and to tour, and particularly young bands uh, in and around the punk rock um, milieu, I guess you could say. Although the tour tends to change from year to year depending on what's hot or what's happening or what bands are up and coming. So the Warp Tour really um, began as a um, as a uh, something that was supporting the third wave ska type bands at that time. So uh, in 1995, some of the first bands on the tour were No Doubt and um, um, I think Rancid, well, Rancid was around a little bit later, but uh, um, Sublime. Uh, and these kind of bands that were introducing the phenomenon of ska, combining ska with punk rock, and introducing uh, the style of ska to a whole new audience. And when Royal Crown Review, when I joined the band, uh, and we were up and coming in the mid-90s, um, ska, you know, third wave ska, they called it, uh, was... Um, really was really happening. And this is sort of where the Warp Tour got its start. But by the time we jumped on in 97, which was year three, there were a lot of different kinds of bands. And by the time we did it again in 99, it, it had changed character even more. So we'll get into those details as 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 a sort of open up more about, about what was going on. Um, so you might ask, well, Royal Crown Review is a swing band. And not only a swing band, but a swing band that is, you know, steeped in jazz and uh, was, was you know, what, what the hell did that have to do with punk? Well, as I mentioned in the, in the previous session that I did about Life on the Road and about Royal Crown Review, RCR was a band that had originally come out of punk rock. It, uh, Eddie Nichols, our lead singer, and James Aker, the guitar player, uh, both had grown up in the punk rock scene of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, you know, there's seminal years as teens coming of age. But at the same time, um, you know, they and the other members of the band, all of us were were uh, trained as well or had sought out some kind of schooling or education. Um, not, not everybody, but some of the guys had. And so, and our tenor player, Armando Durame, had grown up in, you know, East LA and Watts areas and playing old school rhythm and blues with some of the legends of who had invented the honking sax sound, like Big J McNeely and um, Joe Houston, who were still around at that time and um, were mentoring younger players. So we had this amazing kind of a blend of, of, you know, the perfect example is like, you know, Eddie Nichols had a mixtape that had the Ramones on one side and Frank Sinatra on the other, or the Sex Pistols on one side and Frank Sinatra on the other. And that was, you know, and then Elvis. And, you know, it, we were just it was this weird mashup of stuff. And I think, as I mentioned, RCR's earliest fans were the punk rock scene. Um, the guys that had played bass and drums and had managed the band and the band was on their label before I joined were all from a, a, a Southern California punk band called Youth Brigade that had its roots going back to the, to the, into the 80s. So there was some OG punk involved with RCR. And that connection remained. And somehow, even though we were signed to Warner Brothers at this point, and we were definitely part of a new swing resurgence that was happening as part of this whole mid-90s thing. I mean, there were so many cool bands at that time. There was there was the Third Wave Ska thing. And I'll talk a little bit more about Third Wave Ska in a second. Third Wave Ska, there was Retro Swing, Rockabilly was, was very hot. All of these things were happening in Southern California, in addition to 
punk rock um, spawning, you know, a new generation of bands that were sort of combining punk with all these different roots styles of music that, that we talked about. And many of those bands were on the, the, this Warp Tour. So in essence, the way I look at it, 97 was a very pivotal year. There was a lot happening. And the Warp Tour was a really amazing kind of cauldron of um, opportunity for a lot of different bands. And we were just thrown together in, in this crazy, crazy space, you know, uh, running down the road, having no effing idea what we were doing but um, having a great time and making some great music and hoping to come out on the other end alive, you know. Uh, believe me, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't all that far from that. So if you can imagine, the Warp Tour was not what you would consider to be a tour where it's played in venues and bands are in slick tour buses and there's catering and the audiences pay a lot of money and, and, and it's all very fashionable and what you expect from a typical rock tour. Um, the Warp Tour was it was called Punk Rock Summer Camp, and it literally was that. And the idea was, you know, Kevin Lyman, the, the guy who created the tour and is a, an amazing human being in terms of his vision, his foresight, his, the way he designed the tour, I think it, it's something that has kept it running for so long because the business model is super smart and creative and clever. And the idea was, instead of going into the venues, Kevin would book the parking lot outside the venues or he would book um he would book a field <laughs> i kid you not a field in the middle of nowhere near an urban center uh where the the tour would set up and it would happen um but as a result of that he was able to get amazing deals on venues because you know the difference between the parking lot and the inside of the venue were uh, was substantial financially. But this, of course, meant that those of us that were on the tour, life was low budge to say the least. And um, you know, the usually the only places to bathe or brush your teeth uh, were um, you know the. <laughs> You know, it it depended where the venue was. So sometimes we would set up camp outside a basketball arena, like where the Chicago Bulls played, and we'd do the parking lot there, or set up outside the old RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., where the Redskins used to play. And this was summertime, so there were, you know, these, um, there was nothing happening at these venues. It was off-season. So the warp tour, we would you we would go inside and use the locker rooms to shower. But a lot of times we would be like in a park somewhere, and there would literally be like the crappy you know uh, bathroom facilities that would be associated with the park, and that was it. That was you know. And I remember many a morning getting up and going to brush my teeth and just gagging in the sink because it was disgusting doesn't even begin to, to, to describe what it was about. Now, before you, you know, you wonder what the hell were you doing there? Well, interestingly, the whole way through with the Warp Tour, between, I think there was collusion between our record company and our management and our booking agency, none of whom really told us what this was all going to be about. They just said, you guys get to go on the Warp Tour. And, you know, we didn't have any idea what was happening um, we just thought, hey, you know, this is a great opportunity. And part of the reason was that we had been now, um, we had been on Warner Brothers for maybe a year and a half or two years. And, you know, people think, oh, you get signed to Warner Brothers, all your cares are over. Well, 
that wasn't really the case. Even though we had been signed by Ted Templeman, who I, who I've mentioned probably on this this podcast, who's truly one of the great producers of Warner Brothers. He did the first five Van Halen records. He did all the Doobie Brothers. Um, Warner Brothers didn't really believe that a swing band would have any commercial appeal on mainstream radio whatsoever. And so we get signed, and we're, you know, we're already happening as a band. We, we had already been hard at work. The band was around five years before I joined, and then I had been in the band already for about a year. And, you know, we were doing tours of our own, and we were supporting ourselves on these tours, uh, either in vans or when we started doing national tours. We would rent RVs pile, you know, nine people in an RV meant for five and uh, all our stuff. And I did talk about this a lot in the 1991 week in 1996 podcast. But, you know, this was the first time that we were going to be on a tour bus. And we thought, man, we've made it. We're going to be on a tour bus. This is cool. And the tour was about five weeks, uh, July and August. And we, <laughs> we arrive and we realize that this wasn't our own tour bus. This was one of five tour buses that the Warp Tour was providing to the headlining bands or certain bands that didn't have their own way of, of traveling. And so on our t- a tour bus normally holds anywhere from 12 to, you know, there's three rows of, of bunks on either side of the hallway. Each of those is... is um, uh, well, there's usually t- uh, two. Yeah, it may have two or three levels of bunk, and um, you know, so it's usually twelve to fourteen bunks in a in a in a typical tour bus. Um, maybe you know. Um, well, <laughs> the bus we get in had twenty two room for twenty two people to sleep. So this was not just our band because our band we had the seven of us, and maybe one or two crew, maybe a, sa- a sound guy. I don't even think we had a sound guy on that tour. We had a, we definitely had a merch person and a tech to help us with the gear. But it was very stripped down. And then there are all these other people, you know, on our bus. Now, who are all these other people? Well, in addition to uh, bands, you know, the Warp Tour is a lifestyle tour. And that's part of what makes the appeal so exciting. So Vans is the sponsor Vans Shoe Company, of course, and they make, you know, skater, surfer. Uh, started out, Vans used to make, like, deck shoes, you know, for, for yachters and uh, high-end, uh, you know, uh, people that, that belong to the, the, to the yacht club and, and that sort of thing. Um, but they, they got on board, Vans did, with the whole idea of surf, skate, and, of course, that was all growing, the X Games. All that was, was really blossoming right around the time that we started doing the Warp Tour. So they had professional skaters on the tour. They had professional BMX guys on the tour. They had, um, and, and gals, I should say, and they had a, they had a vert ramp, usually, full-size vert ramp. Um, and they would have a, uh, like a freestyle area. They would set up stuff, so this the freestyle skateboard skateboarders could do their thing there. Uh, so you had, you know, in addition to this, like, like a tour of bands, you had all of these athletes. And of course, you know, punk rock, surf, skate, they, the two go hand in hand, definitely skate, skating and punk rock. It's that energy of, you know, big, fin- big middle finger to the man. I remember when I was a kid in the seventies, skateboarding was something that was an oddity like roller skating. And uh, if you guys have ever seen the movie Dogtown and Z-Boys, this is when I was a kid 
and really started maybe, it was right around that time in the mid-70s. But the idea was to do what surfers did, but do it on land. And so they took the surfer aesthetic and went into the empty swimming pools, and skateboarding just exploded. And I remember when I was a kid, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, we got really into skateboarding. And of course, the music that skaters listened to was punk rock, because in the mid-70s, that's what was coming out. So skateboarding, punk rock kind of always went hand in hand. The attitude was the same, the, the intensity, the living on the edge, the craziness, the danger, you know, all of these things um, go with it. So here, this swing band gets thrown into the middle of this tour. And although it may seem odd, which it was, um, one of the great geniuses, again, of Kevin Lyman, and I didn't even finish my, my Kevin Lyman story about the, mo- the business model of the Warp Tour. Because the venues were cheaply had, it was, he intentionally made it very cheap for kids to get into the, to the shows. So you typically had a teen audience, young people, very young, teens and 20-somethings at these shows. They could get in for 15 bucks, 10 or 15 bucks. When your average tip concert ticket was 50, 60, you know, whatever. You could hang out, you could watch bands, you could go see the best skaters in the world, and you could have an incredible experience that was different than any other kind of music festival that you might have or any other kind of concert you might have. Um, you had it all packaged up into one. The bands were really accessible because in most of these venues, there was no place to go. You, you had your tour bus, but there were 22 people on a tour bus. And, you know, for those of you who've ever been on a tour bus, it's cool, but it's like a submarine barreling down the highway. And if you have 15 on a tour bus, it's crowded. So imagine 22. And that, that meant like in the back lounge, they, the, all the beds would, uh, the couches and things would fold down and beds would like drop down from the ceiling. So you had four more people in the back lounge. Most tour buses have a front and a back lounge in between sort of the middle section where all the bunks are. So, you know, you could go on the bus, but you weren't going to get any privacy there. And usually the air conditioning wasn't on. And, you know, what I just remember is everything was hot. Everything was crowded. It was the middle of summer. It was July and August. And every day was another hot, treeless, brutal you know, venue. And sometimes we would, we would, the venues would be, I remember one time in, in uh, Florida somewhere, there was some uh, kind of like giant bar that had all these pools as part of it. And you could just go, you know, go crazy. So wherever people got the chance to go swimming, they would, wherever they got the chance to like, you know, but I mean, it was just run around uh, half naked most of the time. Most of the punk rock bands didn't even show up with anything because Vans and all these different companies, clothing companies, sunglasses companies, of course, Vans uh, were sponsoring. So you got, you know, a couple pairs of shoes and you got to know the guy in the Vans thing well and he'd hook you up and you'd get just swag all over the place. You'd get off stage and people were handing out board shorts and t-shirts and all the other bands had their swag. So as I learned after my, you know, first warp tour i didn't really need to pack anything at the beginning of the summer with this with punk rock summer camp i just needed to show up now of course royal crown review were in a much crappier situation because unlike the punk rock guys we couldn't just roll out of bed and wear the same shorts that we've been wearing for the last week and the same vans shoes and no shirt to get up on stage which is how a lot of the bands you know that was their that's what they performed in because that was the southern california you know surf punk kind of uh, aesthetic, right? So we 
But we were wearing gabardine suits. We were trying to figure out, we sort of had this rule prior to that tour that no matter what happened on stage, we were not going to take our jackets off. We were going to wear suits. We were going to look sharp, you know, the whole way through the show. And, um, you know, we, we did a pretty good job of that. But, uh, man, when you're outside and it's like, 105 degrees out or 95 degrees out and then you get down to the south and the midwest and the you know even the northeast in the summer is just brutally humid what are you going to do so we eventually got casual their outfits but still i mean i remember wearing full-on you know gabardine is a very thick heavy um uh, woven fabric and you know we'd wear double-breasted suits and all this kind of stuff so we you know it it and then we all had to do our hair, and, you know, we had aesthetic needs far beyond your average punk rock band. But what I will say is that, um, you know, the, the, the tour succeeded because Kevin Lyman, in his wisdom, and I don't know where the tour has gone since then, it's still succeeding, so I assume his wisdom is still, uh, you know, is still happening. But uh, we, we had, it was an incredibly eclectic tour really eclectic. I mean, we had, you know, you had us, <laughs> we were a jazz and swing band, the only thing even remotely like that on the tour. Although I think a couple of, then they got um, a couple of the other retro swing bands later because they, they liked having that flavor. Uh, you had a lot of ska bands, you had a lot, of ska, a lot of ska punk bands. Then you had bands like Sick of It All, who were part of a scene called New York Hardcore, which was its own thing. And, it, and, you know, of course, New York Hardcore was way more hardcore than any kind of hardcore. And I remember when these bands would get up to play, you know, there was always a mosh pit, first of all, even for our shows. There was crowd surfing. It was, the you know, the crowds were young and crazy and super excited to be there. So, you know, but when the New York Hardcore bands came out, the way you you moshed to a New York Hardcore band was you balled up both your fists and you just swung your arms around and ran into the thing. And everybody's swinging their fists around. And I'm going like, I like I like punk rock, but this is this is a little much. But it you know the positives, and you know probably some of you are going, why would you ever subject yourself to this? Well, a as I said, we had really no idea what we were getting ourselves into until we were committed. But B. You know, the the Warp Tour opened up the United States of America and um, exposed us to things like MTV and uh, K-Rock and, you know, alternative rock radio uh, in a way that we never would, probably would have gotten that exposure had we not been associated with that tour. And, you know, and with some of the bands that emerged out of that tour, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, um, it, it, uh, it, it was, um, you know, a great opportunity for us. And for those of us in the band who I had been into punk rock to some degree when I was in high school, the band that I was in went through a lot of phases. We started out as a, as a, a, a Black Sabbath kind of cover band, which was amazing. I'm in the eighth grade when I joined this band of high schoolers. So we started out playing all Black Sabbath tunes, and we kind of graduated to be more of a classic rock type band. And then, um, you know, New Wave and stuff and punk rock were hitting really hard. This is the early 80s. So we kind of, we got a female singer and we switched, we became a new wave band for a while. And then the last iteration of our band, um, the singer decided he wanted to do hair metal. And at that point, I was less excited about doing like the Scorpions and that kind of stuff. But um, it was an interesting thing to be part of that band because we did do at one point a lot of punk rock and, um, and new wave music. And it was really cool. I got got really turned on to that and we had a female singer and uh we did uh we did a lot of pretenders tunes 
which was very fresh and very cutting edge at that time. And it's, it's amazing that 1998, I did an entire summer tour, Royal Crown did, with, um, with the, the Pretenders and the B-52. So I ended up getting to know Chrissy Hine pretty well um, that summer. Uh, but this is this is all prior to that. This is 1997. So, you know, the way the Warp Tour would work then, the day would begin, first band would hit the stage around noon, last band would hit the stage around five o'clock, and sort of for those six or seven hours, it was just chaos and pandemonium. And um, they had two main stages, uh, which, which would... Uh, they would just go back and forth all day. Usually they had... Um, the stages would travel with the bands, with the trucks, with the buses. Um, and, you know, it, it, when the Warp Tour, like, pulled in, it looked like a scene out of Blade Runner because, you know, most of the bands were not on a tour bus. Many of the bands, and I'm sure this is still true today, would, would come along in their own vehicle because they would maybe only do a week in their area of the country. They would do a regional portion of the tour. Or some bands, some of the some of the big headliners uh, actually did have their own tour buses. Some of them would stay in hotels. Um, not everybody was subjected to what we were. And although, believe it or not, we were one of the headliners because we were on Warner Brothers and we were up and coming and everything was kind of really blowing up for us at that point, we were not we were completely unknown to this audience. So what would happen is these stages were like pop-up stages. They were toured behind the, you know, a truck and then set up and they would either be right next to each other or they'd be, they'd be on opposite sides of the field. And, um, you know, depending on the layout or how many people were going to be there or whatever. And you would just have band after band after band. So you would have 35 minutes to get your stuff set up while the previous band was playing on the other stage. And in a very democratic move, they would shift most of the bands around that were on the main stage to different time slots every day. So you never knew when you were going to play. Um, usually the biggest headliners would always be at the end of the day. But the rest of the bands, you know, because obviously at 12 o'clock noon, there weren't going to be as many people as there were at 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon or 6. So uh, that was sort of how it went. And... You know, our our sort of uh, daily routine was get up, open up your window, see where the hell you were, what field you were in, or what parking lot you were in, or what city you were in. Usually there was, there was no going anywhere. You were too far away to actually go into town. And that was a problem because we were essentially hostage. And when it came to, like, food, you know... Um, this again were the early years of the Warp Tour. This was only uh, the third year they'd actually had the thing, and it I, it was growing. You know, each year was getting bigger and bigger. So literally, the the first year we were on it, the entire quote unquote catering, three meals a day, were all served out of a Roach Coach, which that's that's being generous. One like food truck that had two guys working at it. And I remember the main chef, again, I use this term very loosely, was a bearded, hairy guy who was sweating from the moment he woke up till the moment, you know, from the moment he started working till the moment that he went to bed. And the food was awful. It was, first of all, it was minimal. So if you didn't get there early, they literally would run out of food at almost every meal. And then they would just put out 
peanut butter and jelly, and that was what you had, you know, for a meal. Uh, so I, I remember there was almost some riots in the early part of the, of the tour. They kind of got it figured out a little bit as they went, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people here, several hundred people, I would say, were dependent on this on this food truck for sustenance and um, weren't getting it. So, you know, that was another... Um, a, a, uh, a, shall we say, a downside to the warp Tour. But on the upside, there was this real family kind of feeling, and especially as the tour continued, and I'm sure, again, this happens every year on the warp Tour, but I think back then the tours were a little bit smaller and a little bit tighter, and it really was kind of a family feeling. So, you know, we would hang out with Sick of It All, even though the types of music we were doing were as, as diverse and as opposite polar ends of the spectrum as you can imagine, uh, we became friends with all these guys. And, you know, what was great about the family environment is that every band could just go stand on the side of the stage and watch any of the other bands. And sometimes, you know, people would sit in with each other and people would stave dive, stave dive, stage dive during your set out in the crowd. And, you know, just all kinds of really, um, it was an amazing, you know, family vibe. Everybody was friends. Uh, I remember one time speaking of gabardine pants. I'm going to tell some some stories because there are some really amazing stories that I that that uh, you know are real war stories from the road. But one time we we did some of the, some of the venues were inside on this tour. I remember we played, for example, the Eagles Hall in uh, Mil. I guess it, it's Milwaukee. I think the Eagles Hall is this incredible. The, the venue is up on like the third floor and they had different stages and different floors. Um, this is where Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens and that tour back in 1959 had played their final gig and that's where they left from and they died in the plane crash. So, you know, that was a, that was a cool indoor venue, but I'm, we're playing in this venue and I'm, uh, I'm playing away and I see everyone standing on the side of the stage looking at me and laughing. I'm like, what the hell's going on, man? I'm, you know, kicking ass. And, um, and I realized that I looked down and I was wearing these waist high gabardine uh, pants. They were called, they had what was called a Hollywood waist, which means that there was no seam running, uh, horizontally to create your belt line. The seams went all the way up to the top. And the pants, of course, being old school, these were vintage pants, were very high-waisted. Well, my zipper, which was about a foot long, because, you know, the pants came up so high, the zipper had broken, and or I had forgotten to zip it up. And so this enormous gap was open in my pants, like a foot-long wide gap where the material had just come apart, where the zipper was supposed to be. And everybody just peering in laughing. So <laughs> needless to say that that was uh, you know but it was it was all it was all in in good fun uh, although it could get very intense. So for Royal Crown Review we had always been a band that we were like I I'd mentioned this and go back and listen to the other thing other session where I talk about 1995 and 96 or that one week in 1996 because we were like a street gang. You know, we had these punk rock and rock and roll roots and because we were playing Swing music, which, you know, we always hated that term swing because it had all these negative connotations associated with it. Uh, But because we were playing that kind of music and we had an upright bass and we had a horn section, people would automatically make assumptions about what we were about. And so, you know, when we came out, we came out ready to frickin' rumble. We were like the sharks and the jets. We were going to kick your ass and you were not going to walk away from that event not remembering how this was the most, you know, intense 
rock and roll, unrock and roll experience you ever had. So when we got on the Warp Tour, remember we had opened up for Kiss in '96. That was a big part of that. We had to face, you know, Kiss reunion 1996, putting the makeup back on and go out and try for 20 minutes to to make a dent in that audience, which, as you can imagine, was difficult. Who who had not seen Kiss with all the original makeup, all the original members, and the the makeup back on for whatever, however long it was, 15 years or something, 20 years. So our approach was to go out and beat people over the head. And I'll put a couple links to, um, there's some cool video footage of us um, from that time and and what it was all about. You can kind of see how we approached it. But we tried to out-punk rock the punk rock bands, which was tough. I mean, I was trying to play very fast jazz chops. And, you know, most guys are just going, you know, playing they were playing fast, but they weren't playing complex parts. So everything was like jacked up. We were jacked up. The music was jacked up. And um, in, amazingly, the audiences loved it and totally got it. The, the younger people were much easier to convince than, you know, the audiences we played for in L.A. for a lot of years. I mean, people always loved the band because the band was, was a very entertaining band, put on a great show, a lot of high energy. Um, but the... You know, the, the warp Tour audiences totally got it. And maybe it was because we were in the context already of that scene. And they were like, okay, well, if they say these guys are supposed to be here, they're supposed to be here. But uh, it, it ended up being a really um, amazing experience for our band. So I'll get into that. So the other thing was, not only introduced us to a whole new audience of young people, really young people, teens and 20-somethings who were, you know, making it happen, buying records, going to shows. Um, you know, we now had a, a built-in, not a built-in, but a new fan base that were going to be looking for us the next time that we came to town. We also got in with Golden Voice, who were the promoters of the tour. Golden Voice was a Southern California-based promotion company. I don't know if they're still around today or not, but they were big at the time, especially for, you know, they got their start by really building a lot of the careers of younger bands and working with K-Rock um, and and that kind of thing. And so they they were sort of upstart along with the rest of the entire tour and all the bands on it and all the skaters. It was like this, you know, um, just this this whole thing. And they, they loved us. And what ended up happening was then, you know, as a result of that, we would get invited on a lot of Golden Voice shows. Uh, and I think to some degree for a while there, you know, we brought this cool factor, you know, okay, Golden Voice, Warp Tour, we've got punk rock, but hey, we've got, you know, we've got this swing band, and they, they rock just as hard, and they were, we were all good musicians, and we had a good singer, you know, a lot of times punk rock is not about good musicianship or good singing, you know, it may be about good songwriting and lots of good aggression and, 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 and playing fast and with just pure energy, but we brought all that, and we brought another layer of musicianship, so, so that was cool. And, you know, on some other, I mean, aspects of this, you know, we were young and open to whatever. It was, it was definitely hard. I mean, I'd, I'd, I look back on the Warped Tour sort of with bittersweet memories, because sometimes I felt amidst all this crowd of people very lonely, and I didn't really relate to a lot of, you know, a, lo- a lot of the people lived... Uh, they really lived the aesthetic and uh, were just kind of like, oh, what's up, dude? And that was as far as their um, mental acuity went, shall we say. Uh, so that maybe, you know, my brain, I'm a thinker and an analyzer and, you know, I can be, hey, what's up, dude? But 
at the same time, I felt, you know, a little like a fish out of water for sure. Um, but it was, it was really cool because, you know, I did, I got to do a lot of things, meet a lot of people that I probably never would have. Um, I got to go skydiving, for example, um, at our Boston show, they came at the beginning of the day and said, Hey, if you want to go skydiving, these are the times we're leaving and this and that. And I went and I freaking got to go skydiving, which was fantastic. I went surfing for the first time, uh, when we were down in Australia with the tour. And although you may not believe that a guy who grew up in Hawaii had never been on a real surfboard, well, that's me. I, I ended up um, you know, when I was a kid in Hawaii, I spent all of my free time once I was about at intermediate school in the practice room uh, and jamming with bands and playing music. So um, I wasn't I wasn't a surfer. Not everybody who grows up in Hawaii is a surfer, which is a very common mis- misconception. So um, to talk a little bit more about the bands, just I, I want to mention some of the bands that were on the tour. And I want to talk about, first of all, some of my favorite bands on the tour, because uh, obviously, you hear these bands, you know, it's 30-something shows, you hear these bands every day, and you get into them. And um, probably my favorite band on the whole tour was was uh, the legendary Descendants. Now, if you're not a punk rock fan, and an old-school punk rock fan, you may not have heard of the Descendants, but they go back really to the very first days of punk. And what I love about them is that uh, their their style meshes with what I like in music, which is yeah, a lot of the early punk people think the Sex Pistols were, you know, they only think about Johnny Rotten and spitting and Sig Vicious and spiky hair and piercings, but the Sex Pistols wrote great hooks and the their music is really not all that different. It's not the super fast, what they call thrash, you know, you know that kind of style of punk. It was It was like 70s rock, just with a new attitude, a new middle finger up in the air kind of an attitude, but, you know, and maybe Johnny Rotten's style of singing where he just sort of, yeah, yeah, talk sang his way through everything. Maybe that was different too. But in general, they had great hooks. They had great memorable hooks, very much like Nirvana. And I love that um, when a band actually writes good songs with good lyrics, Um, you know, and the way it was packaged up may have been different, but at essence, it was something that when I first heard the Sex Pistols, I was like, yeah, this is just cool rock and roll music, man. You know, not not all that different than what had come before it. Like I said, the attitude and the look and the time and place and the context was different. So the Descendants had kind of come from that period. They were true veterans. They were amazing. They, they talk about DIY. I really learned a lot about DIY, which means do it yourself. And the punk rockers were, you know, some of the kings, at least at that time period, of do-it-yourself, taking advantage of, you know, um, taking advantage of limited um, ability to get any kind of commercial, uh, um, you know, support from record labels or from television, um, especially in the 1970s and, and early 80s. Now, nowadays, punk rock is very mainstream, and punk rock bands are are, you know, a dime a dozen, and and they get as much exposure as as other bands of other genres. But you have to remember that punk rock was, you know, if you went outside with a mohawk in 1976, you'd get you very likely get get beaten up, especially if you were in small town America. And I'm just talking about the American experience here, but I'm sure it was the same everywhere. It was a dangerous 
you know, thing to take hold of. So bands like The Descendants, and and by the way, if you if you watch Dave Grohl's Sonic Highway, and uh, he talks about different American cities, and he talks about Washington D.C., which is where he grew up, and he talks about the 1970s and 80s in D.C. Um, and how DIY it was, and uh, bands like Fugazi, uh, you know, and The Descendants were right there with those kind of bands. Um, basically, they had their own trucks that they had converted, that they slept in and drove themselves. They in they're from uh, I believe Fort Collins, Colorado. They had a place, a facility called the Blasting Room that had their own recording studio, their own T-shirt manufacturing plant. I'm pretty sure they they made their own uh, CDs or vinyl there. Maybe I, I don't know about that part, but one time on the road, we actually went to the Blasting Room and checked it out. And so these guys were impressive, not only because they were great, great hooks. And they were the type of punk band, they were a little faster and a little thrashier, but they could write an amazing song with like a verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and, you know, a middle section that maybe was kind of a solo, and they could do it in a minute and a half. You know, that is economic songwriting, to say the least. So the Descendants were definitely an inspiration to me. They were sort of like, um, and they were really cool guys, and they were really gave us a lot of advice because we were a newer, younger band. They had been on the, on the road and in the game for a while. Another great band, there were Southern California band, was Social Distortion. Um, Social D, if you're from Southern California, you know all about them. Mike Ness, of course. Um, and um, we would sort of factor in with Mike Ness. We met him, got to know him on the tour a little bit. He's a, he's a pretty reserved guy. Um, but uh, his um, he sort of had a minder, a guy that was like a bodyguard and a minder named Robert Tammany. Hey, Robert, what's up if you ever listen to this? But Robert, um, you know, Mike had, Mike was a recovering drug addict, and uh, Robert was sort of there on the road to make sure that he stayed cool and nobody messed with him, although Mike could certainly take care of himself. But the, um, the uh, uh, Social Distortion, they were a great band. And interestingly, after this whole Warped Tour experience, the bass player in our band and myself got the chance to record um, with Mike on some of his solo projects. And we also ended up working with uh, Robert Tammany quite a bit uh, in the years that followed. So, you know, connections were made. remember they the guys in social d would run a dice game called CeeLo that they would play every night and just take tons of money off of all the young bands on the tour you know and that's something i didn't mention 
in regard to the food truck situation is that there's there's a tradition in the warp tour which was I don't know if it was already underway or it started our year, but there was somebody something called every year there is a barbecue band, and literally in exchange for the privilege of playing on the tour, the barbecue band prepares the post show barbecue held for the bands and crew on most evenings. So this is almost what saved everybody from starving to death on the Warp Tour, um, and I wish I could remember the the band that was the barbecue band, but they literally, they were in a van, all them and all their stuff in a van, and they carried behind them a giant barbecue unit on wheels, and every night would fire it up, and that's where some of the coolest times were, because all the fans would go home, and things would be mellowing out, sort of, (laughs) and uh, there would be a barbecue, there would be, um, you know, people would be hanging, uh, I remember the bass player of Social Distortion was a professional barber, and that's what he did uh, when he wasn't on tour with Social D, and so he would give haircuts in the Social D tour bus or on the side there in the encampment, you know, so it would be like dark, there weren't any lights because we were always in these parking lots or fields, so there was never any light except for what, you know, sort of the barbecue and other things, but I remember those were some of the, the funnest times where the the best bonding was, and of course, Everybody was drinking from morning till night and everything else under the sun, as you would imagine. So lots of alcoholism (laughs) going around, of which I certainly, uh, you know, enjoyed my fair share. But I just wanted to point out one other benefit of the Warp Tour that really was cool with the whole DIY thing, is that in the early years, every band made sure, and if you've ever been in a young band that's actually making it, or trying to make it, and you've had some success, you know that merchandise is a, plays a huge role in your survival um, out there on the road. And that is essentially how Royal Crown Review had supported itself for, um, you know, uh, the first uh, three, four years that I was in the band. Luckily, we were still in the old school era before Napster, before file sharing, before downloading, before the internet really took over all of that. And so people put their money where their mouth was, and they bought a lot of CDs. And amazingly, 1996, the previous year to being on the Warp Tour, we had recorded a live album called Caught in the Act, which uh, a lot of people to this day say it's their favorite Royal Crown Review record. It was really a snapshot of the band, of the hardworking road band. By 1996, we had already done hundreds of shows together, had toured the country many times, and we were as tough as nails. And, you know, we weren't the slickest, and we definitely were as much about energy as we were about music. But we were pretty damn tight, and we had our thing going pretty good, and we played some pretty great music. And we recorded this record, which really, in my opinion, is the closest thing capturing the punk aspect of what we could do as a band. Things were tempo-wise pretty wound up and in your face, and it was just massive amounts of energy. That record is like you know, a one-two punch. And uh, if you guys can get out, I don't even know if it's still in print. I think it is, but try and find it. Royal Crown Review, Caught in the Act from 1996. It's on Surf Dog Records. Bubble, 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 bubble
So that was the record we were working at that point. We had one record out on Warner Brothers already, Muggsy's Move. And that record just resonated really hard because that was the vibe of the uh, of the music we were putting out and the intensity on that warp tour. So, you know, the merch hang was just as important. And after the, you know, as soon as our set was over, we'd rush over to our merch booth and we'd probably be there for like an hour or an hour and a half selling CDs, signing CDs, talking to fans. We'd make sometimes, you know, 12 or 1500 bucks um, or 2000 bucks in, in one day. And that's really how we survived because we were, we were, I can't even remember if we actually got paid or if the tour bus was our form of payment for the tour. Warner Brothers at that time was still not giving us any tour support. Like for the first maybe two years we were on Warner Brothers, they didn't give us any tour support at all. Even though we had, we were on a major label with a, with a, with a record out. That's how little they believed in what we were doing and, and the fact, the hope that swing, retro swing could break above ground as a mainstream um, style of music. And that's a whole nother story, which I will not go into now. In any case, another of my favorite bands on the Warp Tour was Hepcat. Now, Hepcat were, you know, I'd mentioned that the tour had started off with a lot of um, third wave ska bands. And I think I said, no doubt, you know, when they were young and just getting started, they were on the very first Warp Tour, Rancid, uh, Real Big Fish, Goldfinger, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, um, this band Dance Hall Crashers. There were so many of them, and they were all playing that third wave ska style, sort of punk ska, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, But <laughs> our favorite band on the tour was a band called Hepcat. And Hepcat was another L.A. band, kind of at the same level as we were, making a lot of noise. And they were doing like what we were doing, that in the face of all of this kind of, uh, you know, taking a style of music and meshing it up with punk, they went and and played first wave ska. Now I should mention first and second and third wave ska. First wave ska is actually the ska that was created in Jamaica in the early 1960s, and it's a predecessor to uh, reggae music. And so um, they had a couple singers in the band that in Hepcat that were just amazing at kind of creating the Jamaican vibe, even though they were both American, African-American guys. Um, and the band was really steeped in their music, just like we were steeped in ours, uh, in terms of understanding the roots of that music. And they played incredible uh, Jamaican ska music. In fact, um, Right On Time is the name of the record that came out while we were on that warp tour that they were supporting. It's an amazing record. If if you like ska music, Jamaican ska or modern ska, go go get that record by a band called Hepcat. So they were on the tour as well, just adding to the to the diversity of the whole experience. And the last band that I really want to mention that was one of my favorites on the band, although they were a bit terrifying, uh, was a band called Pennywise, who were, um, I think they're from Huntington Beach or maybe... Um, you know, Redondo or Hermosa Beach, one of those beach cities in Southern California that's just south of LA, um, kind of in Orange County. And, um, you know, they, they were brutal punch in the face punk rock, sort of the, the meanest, toughest of the Southern California bands. Cause of course you had, you know, all these different kind of regional ska bands. Um, but this, this definitely was surfer ska music. And they had this song called Bro Him, which I'll tell you more about, because uh, I think we're this is going to have to be a two-parter again. 
Um, I just, t- there's too many memories in my outline is too long is all these things I want to share. So anyway, I guess what I'll do here in the next few minutes is I'll wrap up talking about the, the U S tour. And, um, what I will then do is talk about, uh, the, in the next segment here, the part, you know, the next part of this tales from the road, the warp tour, I'll, I'll talk about, um, the, uh, the, the, the foreign tours we did, which were a whole nother thing and a lot of crazy stories associated with those. But I hope you're enjoying this. I hope it's uh, entertaining and interesting because being on the road was entertaining and interesting. And it really was a strong period of my life that I've never really sat down and sort of put together into a, into one into one sort of package. So I also, in addition to those bands, well, so Pennywise, this song Brohim was about their old, their previous, I believe, bass player who had died. And so they wrote this song to their bro, this hymn to their bro, hence called Bro Hymn. And it was it's the song, they probably still do always finish. It's like this epic punk rock anthem, wave your fist in the air. Maybe I'll play a little bit of it. Um, I want to play some of these bands. So maybe what I'll do is I'll play um, some of some of Bro Him, and I'll also play a little bit of, of Hepcat's music because I think those are, those are two of the, the more interesting bands. So that was Hepcat, and that was one of their tunes from that album, Right on Time, and also Pennywise, Bro Him, two totally different sounds, both on the Warp Tour in 1997. I also want to point out, and this is another kind of one of many Forrest Gump moments that I feel that I had, there were a bunch of bands that would go on to fame and infamy, or I don't know what you'd call it, but became very, very big out of that tour, and that's really where they broke. First band was Limp Biscuit, which uh, now they've kind of faded from the spotlight, kind of thankfully, if you ask me. But they were sort of um, in the vein of rapper punk, and they they were kind of doing rap stuff, which was also sort of becoming big in the style of what Eminem would become. Or uh, what's that other band? Jump, jump. <laughs> I can't remember all these bands. But in the early 90s, House of Pain. You know, they were sort of a House of Pain type of a band. So they would, it was like metal, but it was rap, but it was rock, Red Hot Chili Peppers, same vibe, although that was a little funkier. Anyway, Limp Bizkit, they would go on to Infamy in Woodstock 99 the following year, where they sort of set a bunch of, or caused the crowd to set a bunch of stuff on fire. Also on that tour was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, who ended up having a huge hit that summer. Um, with their song, The Impression That I Get, or The Impression I Get, I think is what it's called. Um, they were a great band out of Boston. They brought the Boston blue collar, uh, you know, they were they were also ska-based kind of band, but they, they had this really kind of awesome sound. They had horns, um, and Dickie Barrett, the lead singer, kick-ass, great personality, great rough, gruff voice. Um, and uh, by the end of the summer, they, they, they were huge. 
Um, and uh, Dickey would go on to be the sidekick on Steve Jones' radio show in L.A., and then I think he was on Jimmy Kimmel's show for a long time um, as, a si- as sort of a sidekick. I don't know if he still is. Maybe I had the wrong show. I think it was Jimmy Kimmel. Anyway, um, so uh, two other bands that I want to mention, uh, Sugar Ray, Mark McGrath. They just they got their start. Uh, they literally were so unknown. There, there were some other smaller stages in addition to the main stages. And they literally began uh, by playing on the local stage at the beginning of the summer. And by the end of the summer, they had a huge hit. Um, and uh, I just want to fly. Huge hit. They were headlining the, the main stage by the end of the summer. And of course, uh, sort of the biggest success story um, of that tour was Blink-182, who were just another of the handful, large handful of Southern California punk bands um, that were on that tour. They were also playing the local stage at 12 o'clock noon, first band of the day on the smallest stage. Uh, Travis Barker was not yet in the band. They had their original drummer. And um, they, as we all know, went on to become sort of superstars of the quote-unquote pop punk thing, which, I don't know... um, Anyway, I'll withhold my opinion about that and about that band. Although, um, what's interesting is there was another Southern California ska band on the tour uh, called the Aquabats, who would dress up as surfer superheroes. They would wear these kind of wrestler masks and these like rash guards that were bright pink matching, and they would wear board shorts. And so they were kind of like this sort of super surfer ska superhero dress up kind of band. And their drummer was a guy named. Travis Barker. So the makings of the meeting of those two forces were set on the Warp Tour in 1997. And actually, in the next session here, I am going to tell you about the night I was there when Travis played his first gig with Blink. So um, interesting story. Whether you're a fan or not of any of this music, I think it's an it's interesting stories. So some other, you know, um, another band that was on the tour was the Vandals. Uh, again, if you don't know that much about Southern California punk, you may not have heard of them, but, um, they're sort of legendary on that scene. And of course the drummer for the Vandals who would go on to, um, mass stardom as a drummer is, uh, Josh Freeze. And Josh was already, um, a, a very heavy hitter at that time, 1997, even though he, um, was on tour with the Vandals. He was doing all, I remember the night before the tour, I saw him. The, we all got to the airport or whatever we were going for the, the, the when we flew out and he was like oh, I was just did a jingle last night for Air Canada and I was like wow but um Josh was there with the Vandals who were sort of the most you know disheveled falling apart they were they were one of those punk bands that was almost like a joke Blink 182 was kind of like a joke too everything was a joke everything was like ha ha you know they were kind of like the class clowns and I remember in addition to Josh who's this insanely great drummer incredible technician, um, played punk rock like he was Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, y- y- you had the, 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 the lead guitar players, this guy named Warren. And Warren, as I found out during the tour, was like working for Danny Elfman doing orchestration for all of Danny Elfman's incredible orchestral scores. But here on the, the punk rock tour, Warren was known as like the ultimate class clown who liked to take his clothes off. And I kid you not, at any moment, you would just look up and Warren would be running across the field or running across the stage, either buck naked or in his underwear. And just for no reason whatsoever, he just liked to, you know, 
strip down and, <laughs> you know, show what he had, I guess. But that was the vibe of the Vandals. You know, they were just, they were like really, I mean, all these bands, one was outdoing the other as far as um, just how out of hand they could be and how, you know, uh, I don't even know the words to use, like, you know, throwing every normalcy, every convention of normalcy out the window as much as possible. Um, so, uh, in any case, great stories all around. Um, the, that warp Tour, I remember we, we got to go to Canada, Montreal. Um, we were joined by The Offspring for one show. It was a pretty epic day. I think Can- Montreal was the biggest show we had on the tour. It was something like 15,000 people. And although we didn't play on, you know, as the closer that night, um, Pennywise did and the offspring were there. Um, and again, the offspring were pretty huge by that point. They had come up at the time of Nirvana and were, you know, too big for the warp tour already at that point. Um, but they, um, I, I just remember the sun setting and literally 15,000 people were taking empty water bottles and throwing like hundreds and hundreds of water bottles all in the air as, you know, this maelstrom of punk rock is going on and just standing on the side of the stage looking out at that it was a pretty incredible incredible moment another incredible moment um when we played asbury park uh instead of having a, a formal well we had a show in new york at what was called randall's island which was a a former athletic venue which is just outside the city right off the east river um and randall's island uh, i remember there's in my historian years later on, there I, w- I would see famous Count Basie footage. They had some huge swing concerts at Randall's Island, but it was an athletic, uh, you know, a field with a track. Um, we, we played at a velodrome in, in Southern California. That was the first show of the tour. It was at a university that actually had, it was like Cal State, I mm, can't remember, somewhere near San Pedro, uh, they actually had a velodrome where bicycles race, an outdoor velodrome. We played in the middle of that, you know, an out- outdoor event. Um, RFK Stadium was a million degrees, was the hottest show of the tour, 100% humidity. You know, it was so brutal. And um, there's actually footage from our OK- RFK that's on the internet of, of RCR from that day. I just, you know, there's things that are, and I think I had a horrible hangover that day too, just, just in case the rest of it wasn't tough enough. But we would do some double drumming, and that was really cool. Uh, there was a band called Sunchild that were also from Southern California. They were like a hippie band, and they were doing kind of Almond Brothers, sort of Southern hippie rock, I guess. Totally different vibe. And we used to, they used to invite a lot of guys up to do to double drum. So um, some one time, Josh Fries and I did a double drumming thing together. Um, but Joey Ramone, man, that was an exciting one. We played, like I said, there were some indoor and some outdoor venues, some combined indoor and outdoor. We got to play the Stone Pony in Asbury Park because, again, Asbury Park, New Jersey, that's where Bruce Springsteen got his start and Southside Johnny and the Asbury Dukes, Asbury. Um, and this club, the Stone Pony, which is right at the on the Jersey Shore, right at the ocean in Asbury Park, New Jersey, it's, a, it's an area that's 
gotten, you know, has been run down for quite a long time, a very blue collar area, a big kind of black neighborhood around there. Um, Pretty funky, but pretty cool as well. And Joey Ramone was hanging out with all uh, around the tour buses, you know, Joey Ramone, man, who I talk about in, well, I didn't talk about him, but one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen in my life is the Ramones. And that is not just one of the greatest punk rock concerts, one of the greatest concerts. Anyway, I have, I have said too much. um, And uh, I've been talking now for about an hour. So I'm going to sign off for now, but I'm going to continue my warp tour um, expose uh, by not only in the next session talking about um, what, you know, our experiences going international with the Warp Tour, which we were introduced to Australia for the first time, where we ended up having a huge career that lasted about uh, 15 to 20 years because of the Warp Tour. We went to Europe for the first time, where we got to play some of the biggest and most prestigious European festivals uh, as part of the Warp Tour. New Zealand, Hawaii, where I grew up. So we 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 really got a chance to to tour the world with the Warp Tour. And I'm also going to talk about how a video that we shot in one of the US Warp Tour locations, Panama City, Florida, ended up uh, being a career changer for us. So all that forthcoming, I want to thank you very much for listening to my blatherings about being on the road. If you have any questions, be sure to email me. Um, if you have any remembrances about the Warp Tour, be sure to pass them along. Uh, you can always reach me on Facebook by email. Uh, you can go to my website, danielglass.com, etc., etc., etc. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of The Daniel Glass Show. And we'll see you next time around. Peace. Peace.